turn to the book of the epistle, sorry, of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm just going to pray again real quick. Father God, we just pray that you, you're very present within this message. I know you're omnipresent, Lord. I know that you are everywhere, but Lord, I just pray that your power is felt, that we hear your word, not, not mine or someone else's, but Lord, the word of God. Pray that it is delivered and takes root within our heart today, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The title of this series is Holy Spirit Power, Holy Spirit Purpose. And there's a few things we have to kind of get out of the way before we really dive into things. When we say certain things regarding the Holy Spirit, we have to ask, well, what do we really mean by that? What are we really saying here? For example, I just talked about uh, feeling the Holy Spirit's presence. What we really mean is we want to feel the Holy Spirit's power. We want to experience that or know His power. If we have this mentality that we have to do certain things or say certain things or listen to certain songs in order to feel the Holy Spirit's presence, that's not what Scripture tells us to do. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is God. He is everywhere. What we are saying is we want to feel the Holy Spirit's power within His presence, right? And so often what we, what we actually experience is we, we have this mindset that if I do this, if I say the right words, if I sing the right songs, we can, and we're not saying this, but this is what we mean, we can somehow conjure the Spirit. Well, that's witchcraft. That's not Christianity, that's, that's not what we are to do. We're, we don't summon the Holy Spirit. He's already there. What we mean is, like I said, we are submitting ourselves to His power. If we are only able to experience or know the Spirit's power because we sang the right song or said the right thing, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's hype. And the Holy Spirit is not about hype. He is about giving us hope in Christ. The Holy Spirit moves when one of two things happen throughout all of Scripture, either when a person is humble or in need of conviction. Those are the two times the most we see the Holy Spirit doing these things, and it's always operating the Holy Spirit, the pneuma is the Greek word, the pneuma of God, the breath of God is the Holy Spirit. He is moving and operating within the church to bring people, people in general, saved and unsaved alike, to Jesus Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's function. Now, often within the church, what we see is the Holy Spirit being blasphemed. We see the Holy Spirit being abused. We don't realize it. We don't even recognize it sometimes because so much much discernment is lacking within the church. Now, if someone were to say something about God, well, God the Father was this or God the Father was that, and we know it's not scriptural, we say, hey, that's, that's blasphemy. Don't do that. If we're in, say, this happened to me in Bible college, we're in a classroom and someone raises their hand and says, well, actually, I think Jesus was a woman. We might kind of cringe and say, don't do that to Jesus, right? And that that girl was corrected very quickly. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's like all bets are off. We let anything go. Far too often we see this happen. And so what we see the Apostle Paul doing specifically in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, is laying out what the Holy Spirit's function within the church truly does, how we are to interact in the Spirit, 
and how we are to submit to the Holy Spirit within the confines of the church. So we begin reading in, in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The role of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus himself said in John 16, 14, is to glorify Christ. But the Holy Spirit is God working within his church. That is the Holy Spirit's function. He does this as he works within us. The Holy Spirit works within the church as he empowers us, as he makes us his vessels of his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Scripture. Now, as we begin this series, I'm going to preach for as as long as I can, so just hang on, okay? Because this is going to be a lengthy message. We're going to dive as deep as we possibly can. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit as he works within the church, as he leads us, as he empowers us, and ultimately as he is sovereign over us. Because again, if you're taking notes, write this down. The Holy Spirit is God working within the church. And he begins by leading us. We read in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now this points us back to something that Paul has already said Back in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul points out what he is doing, the purpose for his writing is he is addressing things within the church that the leaders of the church asked him to address. 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And he's going to go on. He's going to address the topic of marriage and, and sexual relations and things like that. All that to say that Paul is not unaware of what's going on within the Corinthian church. He has also been keeping tabs on them, aside from this letter that the Corinthians have written to him. He's likely received letters from people within the church as well. We know this because he's aware of things that are going on that they didn't ask him about. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5.1. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So in chapter 5, we see evidence that Paul knows what's going on within the first Corinthian church. I say first Corinthian, the Corinthian church, sorry, within the Corinthian church. 
He, he's kept tabs on them. He gets reports from those within the church. But the leaders of the church have also been writing him too. And we know it's likely, it's probably this Chloe character that he mentions in, in chapter 1, verse 11. She has mentioned to Paul that, or at least her people have mentioned to Paul that there's quarreling within the church. And that's what really kind of seems to begin the letter. He wants to address that first. There's division in the church, and that's unhealthy, and that, not, that shouldn't be. So in the previous chapter of, what, of our text, chapter 11, Paul's addressed some of that behavior. He's, he's talked about how they need to come together for the Lord's Supper, how they should judge, one, judge themselves as individuals rightly, and how they should share food and fellowship with one another. Much of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians is actually to address the church's actions and their mistakes and their misdirections, whatever we want to call them, Paul's goal is to get the church back on track. He wants to restore them to where they had been when he left them. And here in chapter 12, he begins to to talk to them, and he tells them, don't be uninformed about the spiritual gifts. The word uninformed, it actually, I I can't remember the Greek word, but he's basically saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. Now, when someone's ignorant, it's not saying they're stupid. He's not saying they're dumb or anything like that. He's not saying they're unintelligent. They just don't know. They're uninformed. That's what ignorance is. So he wants the church to know about the gifts, but he wants them to understand these gifts and use them in truth and in power so they can use them effectively. I enjoy listening to some preachers who who do not believe the spiritual gifts are for today, but, but nowhere in Scripture do we see that ever being evident. In fact, we see stern direction how to use the gifts. It's not that the gifts are to secede, or they're called cessationists, or to stop. It's that they're to be used properly. They're to be used rightly according to Scripture, according to what the Holy Spirit has already inspired. Now, many of those people I'm referring to, they're opposed to the spiritual gifts. They're opposed to the miraculous. They're opposed to the the giftings that we operate in as Pentecostals because they've seen them abused. They've seen them misused. They've seen evil men use them for evil purposes. Second Peter chapter 2 addresses this very type of person. This is who we should watch out for. And Peter says, they have eyes full of adultery. By the way, Second Peter chapter 2 is sometimes called the false prophet playbook because he, he lays it all out. But this is the portion I want us to catch this morning. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, who is Balaam? You remember the Sunday school story, right? He's the guy who had the talking donkey. But really, Balaam was a prophet. And what, he, what Peter is saying is these men claim to prophesy. They claim to be speaking on behalf of God and using the giftings of the Holy Spirit. But in reality, it's their own selfish spirit, their own lustful spirit, or possibly even a demonic influence that is... That is uh, impacting and corrupting those people around them. Paul says, don't be ignorant. Paul says, don't sleep on that. Don't avoid that stuff. Confront it. And that's what he's doing here. I want to get this out of the way as we move forward within these chapters. The, The scripture gives us 
specifically, not counting the spiritual gift of discerning spirits, but, but Scripture itself gives us four practical ways to test whether or not prophecy, a message in tongues, a word of knowledge, these things, if it's truly from the Holy Spirit. The first thing we see is, and 1 John 4 lays this out as well, but we're going to expand on it. For, uh, the first thing we see is we have to ask the question, is there scripture that contradicts this word? Or is there scripture that, that contradicts this prophecy? Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? If someone prophesies or they give a message in tongues and, and, and it does not line up with Scripture, it needs to be thrown out. It needs to be disregarded. What Scripture says is final. Now, if you don't believe that, I'm sorry, that's Christianity 101. That's basic Christian belief. Scripture is the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it is our foundation. And if you don't agree with that, you need a heart check. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, or breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And not far above the page in 2 Timothy 2.13, he says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is, he is continuous in his message. He doesn't change it. So if a prophecy or a word of knowledge or any other quote-unquote word from the Lord contradicts what was written, the written word of the Lord, what do we do with it? Well, there's a donation bin, a big red one outside, right? The, the dumpster. We throw it away. We disregard it. We move on. The second we have to ask, especially if it's a prophecy, we have to ask, is it true or does it come true? Deuteronomy 18 gives us a guideline here. It says, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now, an old pastor who has spoken in my ministry quite a bit, he once told me, he said, if you're going to stand before the people of God, and say, thus says the Lord, you better make sure he said it. And what he was referring to was study of Scripture. But for someone who claims to be speaking prophetically, they believe they are hearing directly from the Lord. So before they even utter it, they need to be testing it. They want to make sure that, that they don't get it wrong, lest we ignore them. In fact, if a, if a person speaking prophetically utters something or says something that is not scriptural as they're prophesying they disqualify themselves as a prophet we don't we are to disregard everything they have disqualified themselves from ministry they've disqualified themselves from the office of prophet and you don't you may not agree with that but jeremiah and ezekiel have very strong words for these types of people jeremiah says the lord said to me the prophets are prophesying lies in my name i did not send them nor did i command them or speak to them they are prophesying to you a lying vision worthless divination and deceit, the deceit of their own minds. And Ezekiel, he also says, my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Now, we don't hold that the office of prophet still exists in the same way 
as we're going to see, the, the Holy Spirit makes the, the gifting of prophecy available to all who are in the Spirit. Still, we must test what is being said. Did the prophecy come true? Is the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom applicable? Does the message in tongues, does the interpretation have any truth to it? We have to ask this. We are to be discerning. Third, does it add or does it subtract from Scripture? In other words, is it adding a special revelation? I'm using quotation fingers here. A special revelation to the divine revelation that we've been given. It may not contradict Scripture, but does it add to or take away from what has already been given to us? Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And then, all the way in Revelation, Revelation 22, 18-19, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So at the beginning of your Bible and at the end of your Bible, you have a very strict warning not to take away or add to what's been said. Should a gift of the Spirit do that, we know it's not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's contradicting the Holy Spirit's words. Amen? Now with that said, we also know from Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. So someone may come along and they may have a word of knowledge and maybe it doesn't, or a word of encouragement or a prophetic word or something, maybe it doesn't sound all that scriptural to you. Good example, maybe it's a, a poor example, but maybe someone comes along and they say, brother, I believe the Lord told me to put your iPad down. You need to spend a little more time with, with the Lord in prayer or in, or in your Bible. Now you may hear that and you might say, God doesn't care about iPads. They weren't even invented when Jesus was around, right? But you're if you're addicted to screens all the time, that may very well be God using that person to come along and speak into your life and say, hey, you know, you're not making time for God. You're not making time for prayer. And you need to put down that idol. You need to put that down. The word of prophecy always means to draw us closer to Jesus. On the flip side of that, and I'm just going to say this, there were a lot of so-called prophets the past few years who are more concerned with politics than they were the kingdom of Jesus. And they need to repent and sit down. The Holy Spirit does not draw me to the donkey or the elephant. He takes me to the Lamb of God. Does it take you to Jesus? Is it edifying? Is it rebuking? One of the things that, that I don't understand is so many times when we come together, and not necessarily our church, but when I, when I come to other things, like district things and stuff, if someone has a word or, or a, a a message in tongues, the interpretation is always real encouraging, real uplifting. Well, we don't really always see that in Scripture. In fact, more often than not, it's something of condemnation. It's something challenging. It's something rebuking. It's something that gets us where we need to be because that's what God does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He draws us to Christ. He convicts us. In fact, in John 16, he says he will convict the world of sin. And sometimes we have to ask, is it some kind of new revelation? Are they saying, did God really say? We, we should test that, right? We should definitely look at that. Or, or maybe it's something in direct opposition. Jesus is coming back October 12th, 2023. Go ahead and prepare. Whoa, watch out for that, right? 
We've seen that happen. You guys, anybody else remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988? There was a sequel, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. And I think eventually that guy just made his money and stopped. But we have to test these things. And the fourth and the final thing for discerning is simply, what's the track record of the person who's giving this utterance, who's giving this message? Deuteronomy 13 tells us, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, well, we would just stop there, right? We would just let it go. No. He says, if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then on down the page, verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So what's their teaching? What's their what's the other fruit of their lives? The New Testament equivalent is this, Galatians 1, 8, and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, I moved ahead too fast on my slides there. Uh, even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you, we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So we have to ask, what are they teaching? What fruit of the Spirit are we seeing in their lives? Because the fruit and the gifts go hand in hand, do they not? So what are they doing? How are they living? Are they living in a biblical life? Are they leading in a way to take people to Jesus with them or draw people to themselves? Paul says, don't be ignorant of such things. In fact, the word he uses here for spiritual gifts in verse 1 is not the word we typically see Paul use. It's the word pneumatikon. And it it literally means pertaining to the Spirit. It's referring to spiritual qualities or spiritual characteristics that are under spiritual control. That's not Paul's word. That's their word. Hear me on this. Spiritual gifts, this is the textbook definition. Spiritual gifts are the divine enablement for ministry that the Holy Spirit gives us in some measure under his control and used for the building of the church for Christ's glory. Later on, Paul in verse 4, Paul will use his word, charismata. It's where we get the word charismatic. And it means gracious gift. That's where, that's where we're to go with this. It's what Paul's emphasizing. Charismata is Paul's preferred word for these things. And it seems that when the Corinthian church was writing him, they used their word, and Paul says that's, that's not the way we really should look at these things. Now, this matters because this is going to open our understanding as we go forward as to how Paul views these giftings. The Corinthian churches, we're going to see, they are going to use their tongues with no interpretation. They're going to have prophecies and discourage discernment about those things. And in doing all this, they're they're doing it in front of outsiders, people who have no clue what's going on. And so it's destroying the testimony of the church. On top of all that, They're using these giftings as a means to create a hierarchy amongst themselves, ranking each other based on the gifts they're given. We are not to do that. Yet we often see this happen within the church, as if someone with a gift of prophecy is more important 
but someone who has a gift of servanthood. So Paul uses the word gracious gift rather than a a word that focuses on a spiritually dominant element. We go on to verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now when Paul's saying this, he's referring to their pagan past, and he's he's getting very specific to their pre-Christ life and how they would serve dead idols, lifeless things. They once did not know God, but now that they do know Him, they need to be living in a way that reflects God within their lives. If you'll excuse me to say it one more time, their lives must imitate their theology. While they once served lifeless statues, now they serve a living king. And the imagery Paul uses here is very important. They were led away. And this likely could refer to an event that would happen within Corinth as they would celebrate the, the, their false gods, they would have a procession where people would fall in line and they'd march all the way to a false god's temple where they would commit a sacrifice and then they would do sinful practices. They would do disgusting, what we would call reprehensible things. And so Paul's saying this to draw to mind that they're not to be doing that. You remember what you used to do as you served those other gods. This is not how the Holy Spirit leads you to serve Him, to serve Christ. Now similarly, Paul also uses this imagery to draw to mind the idea of slaves being marched away by their masters. Paul draws upon this elsewhere, like in Galatians 4.3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And he's referring to the idols, idolatry. But now they're led by God's Holy Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Whichever way they were led by these false prophets, or sorry, by these false gods, they followed. When it came to Persephone or Apollo or whoever it may have been, they just got in line. And Paul's saying, no. You get in line with the Spirit. You get in line with Christ. Paul says, we do not worship God. Our God, the way pagans worship theirs. He will not lead us in a procession towards sin. He will not lead us to contradict himself. He will not lead us to unholy lifestyles. Frankly speaking, God will not because he cannot. God is so holy, he is incapable of doing something unholy. He is God working within the church and he will not contradict himself. Next we see the Holy Spirit is empowering us. In verse 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And we see again, Paul's making the case, God does not contradict himself. God's not going to say in one breath, Jesus is Lord, and then the next, Jesus is cursed. Now some people suspect that Paul's also saying this, he kind of has a double meaning here, that they're using the people of Corinth are using Jesus' name as some sort of curse or, or like some kind of magical incantation. Now, archaeologists have found evidence of this actually being done within the city of Corinth in the, in the precincts of Demeter and Persephone, the, the god, goddesses, god and goddesses of the town. Now, if the Holy Spirit is operating in you and through you, you're not going to be quick to say Jesus should curse that person because he's my enemy. We don't see that in Scripture because Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Paul himself is going to go on and tell the Romans in Romans 12, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Everybody loves that verse because we get the idea of setting your enemy on fire, right? But really what he's referring to is bringing life into their soul. He's talking about restoring them, making them a better person, restoring the relationship you have with them. Later on, Paul will say, if anyone, and I've really gotten behind on my slides, I'm so sorry about that. Later on, Paul is going to say, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, our Lord come. But he's not saying he wants, Je- he wants Jesus to curse them. He's simply saying they are bringing judgment upon themselves. We also may draw our, our thoughts back to Acts chapter 13, when Paul has a confrontation with a man named Elymas, and it seems Paul is cursing that man with blindness. That's not what he's doing. He's pronouncing a judgment that God's already determined. And in doing so, he's actually demonstrating a spiritual gift, but we'll get to that in a moment. This idea of saying a curse upon someone in the Lord's name, for Paul, that also has a deeper meaning. Remember, prior to his conversion, Paul was someone who would persecute Christ's followers and compel believers to utter a curse or revile the name of Jesus. He admits to this in Acts 26.11, He says, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, in later decades, the emperor Trajan, the Roman emperor, he's going to have Christians come and and do this very thing. They're going to revile the name of Christ is what he's going to try and force them to do because it's believed and understood a Christian does not revile the name of Christ. We keep it holy. But we see Paul making this contrast here. It's a very sharp contrast. Jesus is accursed is the polar opposite of Jesus is Lord. That's actually, it's a part of a person's conversion experience, isn't it? Acknowledging Christ as Lord, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Colossians 2, 6, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Acts 2, 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is saying that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And this assumes that conversion is what's at stake here. The confession is public. It's declaring before others their allegiance to Christ. And in John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. How does the Father draw? Well, Jesus said, speaking of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8 through 11, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So Paul is making a case that the Holy Spirit dwells within a person who confesses Jesus is Lord. The Spirit does not dwell within a person who curses Jesus or tries to curse their enemies. He also has made the case that there's, there has to be discernment because not every utterance or spiritual phenomenon comes from God's Spirit. And we're going to dive more into that in, as we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But discernment must be used. The Pentecostal commentator, B.J. Oropesa, he writes in the New Covenant commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, discernment is all the more necessary if a person who is relatively a new believer makes spiritual utterances. Such manifestations must not be fabricated, manipulated, or expected to come by a self-induced emotional state. Likewise, there is no compelling reason to assume the Spirit's manifestation and gifts center 
on the notion of ecstatic phenomena or a state of trance caused by spiritual possession or Christian spiritism in which believers become mediums of a plurality of good spirits. In fact, Paul is actually making it very clear that while there's a variety of gifts, there is always only one spirit that we are to be following. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, we go on. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. The gifts Paul promotes come from one and the same spirit. And the spirit may overwhelm somebody with a vision or extreme joy, but it does not characteristically do that as they operate in tongues, prophecy, or other spiritual gifts. Even so, the person is still in control of themselves whenever they operate this way. We see in 1 Corinthians 14.32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now in verse 4, this is where Paul begins to use his word for the gifts, the gracious gifts, the charismata. While the gifts vary, it's the same spirit. So the Holy Spirit isn't going to tell someone to speak a word of knowledge on this side of the room and on the other side of the room have someone else give a word that contradicts it. Right? Amen. Okay, we're moving forward there. We've seen that made very clear. God does not do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The gifts, the service, the activities, they all come from the same God who empowers them all and everyone. That word empowers is the Greek word energon. And it means to work. It means to energize. It's where we get that word, energize. That God is the driving force behind the giftings. So the giftings, therefore, they do what God always does. They glorify himself. They bring us to glorify him, to draw us closer to him. They work together toward him. Paul is building a case pointing us towards unity from our diversity. While we have different giftings, we all still serve the same God. Acts 4.32 says, and this is a clear example of this, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now these people that are being referred to in Acts chapter 4, they are from different socioeconomic backgrounds, they're different regions of the world. They may all still be Jewish, but likely there were some Grecians, some Greeks, some uh, people maybe from the Gerasenes who'd heard the, the word of the demoniac, some from the Samaritans who'd heard the Samaritan woman. They are starting to join up with the church in Jerusalem. So these are different people from different backgrounds, but yet the Holy Spirit operating makes them one. It unites them. 1 Corinthians twelve seven goes on. It says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here we go. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Are we to receive a manifestation of the Spirit so that we can be greater than one another? Absolutely not. Are we to receive the Spirit in order to have a cooler gift than somebody else? Absolutely not. Are we to receive the Spirit so we can undermine leadership because, well, his, lead, his gifting is leadership, but mine's prophecy, so I know better? Absolutely not. It is for the common good. The word there, the Greek word is somferon, and it means to profit or gain. Sometimes it's translated advantage. In other words, we are given the gifts of the Spirit to benefit all of us. We are given the, these things so we all advance, so we all gain. We all grow in Christ. 
Someone once said, the rising tide raises all ships, and so it must be with the gifts of the Spirit, that we all grow. Church, hear me on this. The Spirit empowers us so that we empower one another, so that we bring others to Christ, so that we all grow closer to the Lord, or we're doing it wrong, or it's not the Holy Spirit. We have to come to grips with that. It's not just for a select few. It's not just for one or two. It is for all of us. If that's not happening, again, it's a distraction. It's not from God. It's not something that's serving a purpose to build up his church. It's serving the purpose of drawing people away from Christ, not to him. The whole purpose of the gifts is to unite the church and draw them closer to Christ, as well as draw in unbelievers to Christ. It's not about you feeling drawn closer to Christ. It's not about me feeling drawn closer to Christ. It is about all of us coming closer to Christ. We're going to see this later in the series, but in chapter 14, verse 22, tongues are not a sign, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, uh, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Wow, I butchered that. Let me try it again. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but believers. Probably put it on the screen. That would help too. If it is not drawing us to him, closer to him, if it's not bringing the unbeliever to Christ, it is not the Holy Spirit. It may very well be a spirit, but it is not the spirit because the Holy Spirit is God working within his church. He is not going to use it to scare people away or draw attention to one single person. It is to draw us closer to him. And finally, our third point, the Holy Spirit is sovereign over us. Verses 8 and 9, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Now, now we get into the giftings that Paul's talking about. Now we begin to understand and see what he's referring to. Now he's spelling it out for us. And and trying to make it very clear that the Holy Spirit is working in various ways through the church as he works within the church. This is actually the second time in the entire New Testament that there's been a list of the gifts of the Spirit. And it's slightly different from that in Romans 12, 6-8. That's not saying that it contradicts one another. In fact, what it's actually referring to is and making clear is that there are a variety of gifts that, that there are... Uh, sorry... The issuing of these gifts is as diverse as the church itself. So to start off, the Corinthian church would have, they would have themselves been drawn to the gifting of wisdom. They're in the Greek mindset, if you remember. And they love the idea of eloquent speaking, being able to seem wise. We see that earlier in the, in the letter when Paul contrasts himself with Corinthian teachers. He says, when I came to you, brothers, did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now the historian Pliny the Younger, he's going to indicate the people of Corinth would have naturally thought that an articulate, capable speaker, a talented orator, was divinely inspired by the gods. So how much more awesome, how much more powerful would be such a person who is led by the Holy Spirit within the church. It would be like, ah, oh, now this is our guy. This is our champion. That's why they loved Apollos so much, because he was a gifted speaker. 
But Paul's take on that wisdom is that it's a gift of God. It's less a skill of articulation and more a gift that enables believers to understand divine revelation and the mysteries known by God. We see this back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now today, in the church, these would be those who study Scripture and seem to have an ability to dig in and find insight. I'm not talking about how I study Scripture on Monday to preach on Sunday. I'm not talking about that. These are people who have a specific knack. They can study Scripture. They can exegete Scripture. That that can be learned in a Bible college or a Sunday school class. But they have this, this special way of connecting the dots within Scripture. It's like it just happens before their eyes. They, they really let the Holy Spirit speak through the Scriptures and into their lives, and then they speak accordingly. That's the gifting of wisdom. That's what it truly looks like. Now, the gift of knowledge, we sometimes call it a word of knowledge. This seems to overlap with prophecy a little bit, in a sense, as we see later in chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, but, but we'll get to that. It's like this extra awareness um, of thoughts and activities, locations, circumstances of another person's life or, or things or a group. Paul himself exhibits this gifting whenever he's talking in, back in chapter 5 when he, he mentions that man who's in uh, an incestuous relationship. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Peter exhibits the same thing in Acts chapter 5 when he knows that Ananias and Sapphira are giving not from their heart, but to glorify themselves. Now, I should break here for a second and say, some people may have one gifting they're very strong in, and they may operate in other gifts as well. That's, that's how the Holy Spirit has gifted this to them. The Spirit wills it, as we'll see. There have been times the Holy Spirit's revealed stuff even to me, and I don't think I have the gift of knowledge or anything like that, but I knew that it was God, and he confirmed it later. An example of this we had this uh, man in our church when I was in Indianapolis, and I was a youth pastor, and there was a, a sermon, and there was this altar call, and this guy, he's a big guy. I mean, he could have played for the Colts, and he came forward, and he, he just fell on his face at the altar and began to cry. And I went up and prayed for him because nobody else would dare. He was a scary guy. And I just, as I'm praying for him, I had this vision of him sitting in a dark room looking at a computer screen, and the Holy Spirit says, you know what to say. And so... For the sake of this discussion, we'll call him Frank. I don't think we have any Franks here. I put my arm around him and very lovingly, I said, Frank, it's time to stop looking at pornography. Frank, you're, you're doing this at night when nobody's around. You think nobody knows, but God knows. God sees it. And he just weeps all the harder. Pastor Jeff, that's why I came to the altar. I want to give that up. I need to let go of that. And he said, that just confirms it. He says, I've got to stop. And, you know, he ended up getting rid of his computer entirely. And men, you know, that's not something you just go and throw at somebody, right? He, if I was wrong, in my opinion, and this is only Pastor Jeff's opinion, he's within his rights to punch me in the mouth. But that's the Holy Spirit operating, seeing and revealing these things within the church. That doesn't mean that all your secrets are known by the pastor. I don't want to know all your secrets or things like that. But that, that happens at times to draw us closer to Christ, to to knock out some bad behavior or, or sinful thing. God reveals some things to us, and that's the word of knowledge. 
But again, we must make sure, we better test it, that make sure that that's, that's truly the word of the Lord. Discernment matters. Then there's this little gift that often gets overlooked. The gift of faith. The same word we saw last week in our message, pistis, to believe. But this means something slightly different. Otherwise, all believers have this spiritual gift, right? We all would exhibit this. This is a, an extraordinary trust in God that we see in, in the original readers of the book of Hebrews, for example, those who had their things taken. We see in uh, Hebrews 10, 32-35, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Excuse me. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And soon after that, we, we roll into Hebrews, Hebrews 11, which we call Faith's Hall of Fame, right? These are those within the church whose faith remains steadfast who cannot be shaken. These are the ones who have that faith to move mountains, right? These are the ones who hold on to hope when all else seems hopeless. These are the ones who have the rallying cry. Hey, God can still do it. God is still present. God is still moving. When everybody else is saying, whew, we're hurting. These are the ones who come along with that extraordinary faith that inspires those around them. Of course, then we have the gift of healings. And this is important to us because this is, this is part of our, our uh, 16 fundamental truths in the assemblies. And this would have been relevant to the Corinthian church as well because in their city, there's this temple to this Greek god named Asclepius. And he's one of the Greek gods of healing. You've all seen his staff on the EMT's badges. It's a, it's a single staff with one snake wrapped around it. To be able to demonstrate healing in that city under the power of of the Holy Spirit would have been a huge advantage to those within the church because they would go and heal those who Asclepius couldn't heal or the, the temple priests of Asclepius couldn't heal. And to the early Christians, this healing, physical healing, also confirmed the messianic era had arrived. And for us today, like I said, it's one of our core doctrinal beliefs. We practice, we firmly believe the words of James 5 that says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of, a, prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has a committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we acknowledge God may not heal everybody, but God is sovereign. Healing is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's why we pray in faith for healing. We don't have faith when we pray. Why are we bothering to pray, right? That's what Hebrews eleven six 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That is saying, as we draw near to God in faith, but doing it, we don't believe that just because we have this faith, God has to do it. God's not our genie. God's not at my beck and call or at my command. We are called to do his will. The fact that Paul, and this is an interesting catch, if, if you're paying attention to the wording, the first time Paul uses the plural gifts and not just gift. 
It's the first time he does that in this chapter, and he does this to suggest that there are diverse ways that a person can be used by God to bring healing to individuals and to communities. Not all healings are physical. Some are mental. Some are spiritual. Some are emotional. We'll move on. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, these are the ones we, we see often in the Pentecostal church, right? These are the things we seem to dwell on. Paul is going on with his list, and of course the Apostle Paul loves lists. If you've ever read the, the epistles, it's what he seems to like to do best. And he begins with the working of miracles. So we have to ask, well, what exactly does he mean by that? These were likely acts that were done contrary to nature, right? When we see a miracle happen in Scripture, it's important because why? Because something contrary to reality has taken place. It's why it's so special. It's why it's written down. It's like when Paul struck Elymas in Acts 13, 11, like I mentioned earlier, or Peter telling Ananias and Sapphira they're going to die. Again, in Acts chapter 5. It may also be referring to miracles like raising someone from the dead or, or something else powerful. We have to remember that it's actually an exhibition of Christ's power through us, not the power of the person themselves doing this on their own. The Greek word for miracles is the word dunameon. It's the same root word, dunamis, that we see in Acts 1.8 or Luke chapter 9, and he called the 12 together and gave them power, right? That's the word, power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. Now, of course, this is going to overlap a little with discerning of spirits because a person who has such a gift may also be working to perform exorcisms and casting out demons. We see this again in, in Acts chapter 16 when Paul is in Philippi and he's walking and, and there's this girl who goes before them and proclaims, these guys are guys from God. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. What she's saying isn't wrong, but something begins to annoy Paul as he's discerning the spirit that's motivating her, that's moving her. In Acts 16, 18, it says it annoyed her so much, he speaks to the demon and casts it out. That's what we see Paul exhibiting, this discerning of spirits. Paul knew she wasn't truly doing this under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He tells the demon, get lost. Now, the fact that discerning of spirits is mentioned where it is, it's, it's directly between prophecy and speaking in tongues, it doesn't happen by accident. Paul mentions it here because it's vital to determine the source of the prophetic utterances as well as messages in tongues. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. The discernment of spirits, as it operates through prophecy, exorcisms, uh, all these things, it, it's vital that we discern 1 John 4.1, of course, I referenced earlier, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. A little further down the page, verse 6. Verse 6 says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Prophecy may involve predicting the future. We see that in Acts 21.10 with Agabus, who prophesied Paul's arrest and his imprisonment. But more importantly, it is the proclamation of revelation imparted by God, not human wisdom. We see this later in chapter 14, 
When Paul writes, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. While the gift appears to be spontaneous from that text, it should be taken to mean to be something that is not done ecstatically or irrationally. And so we see the word tongues used as well, glossolalia. The tense used there is glosson. This is the ability to to speak in another language that's unknown to the speaker. It is not, and I want to be clear, it is not meant to be gibberish. Paul is speaking about this very clearly. It is a real language. He goes on in chapter 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and I don't believe for one second he's speaking hyperbolically here. I think there are real languages that Paul's referring to. He's not speaking hyperbolically when he talks about angels giving a false message because we know he also says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. The writer of Hebrews isn't speaking hyperbolically whenever they say that uh, we've been known to entertain angels, so be hospitable. There's, there's no hyperbole mentioned that, in, in that stuff. Now, I interacted with someone recently, and they said angels don't speak their own language. Every time they talk to people, they talk so the person can understand. And I, what? Because if someone from China is talking to me, they're not going to speak Chinese if they want me to understand. Angels live in a different realm of reality entirely. It's not beyond the limits of our imagination to assume they have their own language. When they speak to a person, of course they're going to speak English. They want God to know. But to say that, well, because we don't see angels speaking their language, it doesn't disqualify this. Nobody's going to teach you to speak in tongues either, by the way. Nobody should ever force you to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we believe in the evidence of that baptism through the speaking of tongues, right? That's different than when someone gives a message in tongues in the congregation. And we're going to dive into that more as we go. But when someone speaks in tongues, whenever they are doing this, that is the Holy Spirit moving into them, operating and praying through them. We see this in Romans. Paul makes that very clear. And that's not where necessarily an interpretation is needed. That is a prayer language. That is a gift of God that he gives us. Now, when we do see a message in tongues in a sanctuary, in a a church setting, Paul tells us later there must be an interpretation. And that's one of the other gifts that there's an interpretation. An interpretation, by the way, how many of you, and you can raise your hands to this because I've done it. I, I have not done it. I've, I've witnessed it. Somebody gives a message in tongues and it's like, man, are they ever going to stop? And then the person gives the interpretation. And it's like 12 words long, right? You've seen that? You, anybody? No? One or two of you? Okay. That's because it's an interpretation. It's not a word-for-word translation. There's a difference there. It's, it's meant to provide the meaning of the experience. Not, they're not translators. We see this again in chapter 14. Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. There it is again. We're building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So if someone gives a message in tongues and there's no interpretation, what do we do? We disregard it. We move on. If someone believes they're they're given a message in tongues and they do it and they're obedient and there's no interpretation, we still move on. If someone does it a lot, there may be a conversation had privately about it. 
but there's no need for embarrassment. The church at Corinth was learning. New Christians were learning. Even some more mature Christians must be teachable. The pastor too, might I add. Verse 11, finally. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul concludes this, this what we call a paracopy, this small section by reminding us that it is the Holy Spirit who energizes us through his sovereign will. He operates within the individuals, moving us forward towards unity for his purpose. It is for the building of the church. It is for leading us to Christ. It is all done as the gift, all the giftings we receive, they are all done as he wills. I don't pick which spiritual gifts I get. I don't pick which spiritual gifts I operate in. I don't choose miracles. I don't choose to have a word of wisdom. I don't choose to have a word of knowledge. The Spirit gives them as He wills. That is Him being sovereign. We all, if we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we believe we are given the precious gift of tongues, like I mentioned earlier, for personal prayer. It's not the utterance of tongues. Paul, Paul mentions that here. And we'd argue that's, that's also a prophetic utterance in, in some form or another as well. But what we witness when we see that is an actual miracle. That is the Holy Spirit operating in a supernatural way to speak to us. When someone else interprets from across the room, that, that is a powerful thing that we witness. It's, it's something for the unbeliever to hear, but it's also something to edify the church as well, to draw us closer to Christ. It's not ever meant, none of these gifts, and I hope you understand this above all things, it is not to put a spotlight on a person. It is to shine the light on Christ. The Holy Spirit is always God working within his church, drawing us closer to Christ. I'm going to move to close in just a moment. I know this kind of has gone a little long this morning. But here's the thing we have to stress. We're a Pentecostal church. We don't fear that. We embrace that. But when we operate in the charismata, it must be done for the purpose of building the church, drawing us closer to Christ. And it has to be done with love, but also with discernment. For the church to operate as it should, the watchmen need to be on the walls. They need to stay vigilant. And God must be regarded as holy. Let me end with this. A Pentecostal church, active in the gifts of the Spirit, operating rightly, there is absolutely no excuse for it to be a divided church. It should be a united, thriving church. If we're obedient to the Spirit, He will draw us closer to one another as He draws us closer to Himself. I'm going to close in prayer. And if you're here today and you're saying, you know, I don't know if I have any giftings. I don't know what my gifting is. That's okay. Pray. We'd encourage you to come forward and pray. If you're here, you're saying, I've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I would like for you to pray with me to receive that. We'd be happy to pray with you for that. But I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask you all to stand as we close in prayer. We're dismissed. And as people are praying, please take fellowship out, out to the foyer today. But Father God, we just come before you and we, Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to move. We want your Holy Spirit to, to impact our lives, to move through us and in us so that we are a church united, a force to be reckoned with. The enemy's camp shudders when we come together, Lord. And Father, we ask that you, you bring us closer to Christ, that you are constantly, consistently, as we operate in the prophetic, as we operate in tongues and interpretations and discerning of spirits. Father God, I pray that you, 
Use these things within us. But Lord, I also pray we use discernment, that we use them rightly. Father, I pray you continue to build your church. Lord, I pray that you give us grace with one another. That we are able to accept the gift of faith as much as the gift of miracles. Lord, that we get excited about every gifting of the Spirit. However small it may seem, however insignificant it might because it's your sovereign will taking place within your church, Father. Lord, we glorify you today. We pray that you go with us. Keep challenging us with this message throughout the week, Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.